0: This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers
1: in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. Okay, so I'm Paul Verschur with our uh, Barcelona Brain Cognition Technology Summer School here with uh, Hillel Kiel from... Case Western University or Reserve University? Sorry. Well, want... I, I pronounce it Hillel and I'm at
0: Case Western Reserve University. <laughs> Almost it's a, right. It's an amalgam <laughs> between Case Institute and Western
1: Reserve University, and everybody gets confused by the name. So, no okay. problem. I'm not the only one. No, so yeah, not the only one. Welcome, welcome to the Conversion Science Network podcast. And so, you were speaking in our in our summer school, and. Um, for us was a great opportunity because you have been active in this whole domain of say, trying to understand biology uh, at a sort of a system level, and to also bring this together with a very much technology-oriented view and using robots as a way to test theory and so on. That's exactly where we wanna be, and you are really one of the, the leading characters in this field. Um, but now, so um, what I saw was really... Um, very, very impressive in your talk, and very useful. Is you really try to bring us to this list of principles? So say, where you say, look, yes. I look at these systems, and here I'm really going a few principles. Of course, we can argue then about these principles, and it's, we did. That's probably <laughs> what we will do it again. But I think this is really where we want to go, right? So we want to extract these principles, and and you started fairly simple, but with, well, of course, simple it can still be complicated, but rather low low scale. Yes, let's say exactly. the, the small scale neuromuscular systems. That's right. So, so maybe. Maybe we should, can start a discussion there that you can, can try to describe a little bit what, what, what are these key principles are that you found at that level okay. of, of system so, organization. So let me step back and, and
0: say something about the general principles thing. I didn't show this slide, but this is one that actually, it's in one of the reviews I wrote in uh, 1997 with my colleague Randy Beer called The Brain Has a Body. And that's a particularly influential reference. That's probably one of my few citation classics. If you go to Google Scholar, it's got, I don't know, over 400 citations. For a neurobiologist, that's pretty impressive, unless, of course, you invented a new technique that everybody's using. And uh, in that, what we presented was the idea that uh, what evolution selects for are not bare brains or particular bodies. It's a coupled system of the brain, the body, and the environment. So brains are embedded and they are embodied within a particular body with a certain biomechanics. And then the agent as a whole, brain-body dynamic, has to work in an environment and has to function in that environment. So what I was essentially doing, sort of you keyed in correctly, we're looking for general principles. But in many cases, what's informing our, our search is that larger framework, this idea of the coupled dynamical systems framework, and one way to look at it is to say, okay, many neurobiologists are uh, you'll excuse the expression they're neurocentrists for them, if it 's not the nervous system they're not interested, and they think that the most important thing might be discovering a new channel or a particular molecule and stuff like that and again, I have a lot of respect for the reductionist approach, but from the point of view of this larger framework, what evolution selects for is the entire package. And so, a particular channel, well, if it's dysregulated, affects behavior, and then the animal dies, yes. But otherwise, it may just do, it may be one voice in the crowd. Biomechanics is something that many neurobiologists don't focus on because what they find is if they can throw the body away and just get the brain in a the dish, they can do all their experiments very quickly. So, the question was what is the role of the biomechanics? And in a sense, that was one of the themes that ran through several of the other issues in the, in the, in the talk, though I started with that and focused simply on an unusual biomechanical periphery. And that sort of helps sharpen people's focus. We're, we're used to, if you're a roboticist, you're certainly used to thinking about um, actuators, you're thinking about joint torques, you're thinking about kinematics, you know about the problem of how ill-posed it is if you have excess degrees of freedom. But what happens if you're confronted with a completely different body plan? It's all soft. And it has potentially, you know, it can wrap itself in knots. So one of the things that makes that, uh, I think, a nice place to start is it disorients people enough to get them thinking about why might this be, you know, how would you do this? How would you control this? Uh, I know Frank Grass is gonna be talking about cephalopod control and the kinds of things that octopi can do. But even our tongues, especially our tongues, incredibly flexible devices. Uh, our conversation is being, we're using, uh, I use the term muscular hydrostats, uh, that was originated by uh, <coughs> Kieran Smith, and this is, uh, this challenges your whole idea of how control works. And the interesting thing was, we initially thought, well, this is going to be incredibly complicated. What we discovered is if you actually analyze the mechanics, there are some simplifications that emerge. And then that seemed to me a useful principle to enunciate. that. And again, I take your points very well, that that principle is a typical biology principle. It's not the same as a standard, say, physics principle. In a given context, when you talk about a specific behavior, if you define what the biomechanics does in that context and in that behavior, then you're going to, that will simplify enormously the control
1: questions. Right. So can you give some examples of this kind of simplification that you get through the biomechanics? So one of the things I talked about um, in the particular model we
0: did of a tongue. So you have this longitudinal muscle uh, that runs down the center of the tongue, and you have a circumferential muscle that wraps around it. You could think of it like, if our listeners are trying to form an image, it might be helpful to think of a hot dog in a bun. Okay, So you have this um, the central muscle, the longitudinal muscle is the hot dog, and the bun is the circumferential muscle. So if the central muscle contracts, what happens is the whole thing gets short and fat because the volume can't change. Now, what's fascinating is this, again, I'm not going to go through this in any detail, but I showed a little bit of the math in my talk. When the tongue is long, it turns out it has a huge mechanical advantage relative to the circumferential muscle. What that means is for neural control, if I put just a pulse of activation in to the longitudinal muscle, it's going to shorten immediately. And the circumferential muscle, even if it's working very, very hard, will not be able to overcome those forces until the whole tongue has gotten pretty short. So it it almost drops out of the control picture. In fact, if you didn't activate it at all, there are passive forces that would stop it. So the real key issue is you might want to activate it because you want to extend the tongue again and get it going again. But if you didn't, if you just wanted a single lap, you could ignore the circumferential muscle. So this is something that would not be obvious to somebody unless they'd sat down and looked at the mechanics. Once you look at the mechanics, it becomes very obvious, and then you can look at the neural control that is actually used, that has evolved for it, and say, oh, that's why these features are there.
1: But you could also argue that maybe this is, let's say, just a happy coincidence because this tongue has to fit in your mouth, for instance. Okay, so So
0: if this is really where building robots becomes the crucial thing because it's it's from an evolutionary standpoint, there may be any number of possible historical accidents that led you to have the tongue in the particular shape. It is. By building the robotic device, you can actually say, well, at least is it physically realistic to say that this phenomena happens in this way? And when you do that and you see that it does, as I I, I emphasized in my talk, and I have to always emphasize this to anyone who's listening, it doesn't prove that it works that way in biology. You're raising the key question. There may be other contingencies, historical accidents, but it provides a physical argument that at least it's possible. And then there are ways of testing that. Now, we can't run evolution over again unless you deal with like bacteria which have very, very short generation times, and they don't have tongues, so it'd be hard to do it with them. Um, but you can uh, try to create devices like robots, and then you can, either in simulation or in the actual device, you can play with the properties. So you can change where the uh, where the key point of trade-off will be change with the relative mechanical advantage depending on how you set up the materials and the actuation. And then you can see whether the control ideas continue to, to, to be relevant. And again, when we've done those kinds of things, usually in simulation, but also sometimes in robots, that has paid
1: off very nicely. Right. But now, what was interesting with the tone control is you showed us that when you try to, let's say, generalize the trivial interpretation of the control of the two muscles, you would run into difficulties.
0: So one of the things the animal has to do, of course, is if it's lapping up, like what it does, insides of eggs, uh, most animals have to worry. First of all, if they're hungry, they, they want to eat quickly. But there's also an evolutionary issue, which is during the time that they're feeding, they may be very good uh, prey items and become someone else's lunch. Mm-hmm. So often you want to eat on the run and then literally get out of there. So, <clears throat> or another animal may come and grab it away. So they need speed. And the problem is, what we found was, if we simply tried to do a scale version, a faster scaled version of the inputs that had worked for the tongue lapping that we started with, they did not work properly. They were filtered by both the mechanics and by the low-pass filtering of the muscle. And so we had to jigger them in order to get the same frequency behavior at a faster time scale. What's interesting is, when we then went and looked at some other data, where people have looked not just at lapping, but other behaviors, in, for example, locomotion. You will find, if you look at the EMGs, they are simply not scaled versions of one another. You can't get away with doing that. Part of that, probably a large part of that, is the low-pass filtering. But the other part is the mechanics. And so it was very nice to realize that, oh, this is not just a problem for getting this model to work. This might be a general principle for where mechanics and neural control have to be kept in mind
1: together. Right, exactly. And that also led you to one of your, if you want, principles, more, maybe more a behavioral one in terms of timing is everything. Timing is right? everything, absolutely. Right. And so the, there was a very interesting paper, I was
0: actually asked to comment on it, that came out in Science about, I think, six months to nine months ago, about cat lapping. I don't know if you saw it, but nope. it was actually on the cover of Science. It. And uh, I guess because of the paper I published, they were interested in my comments on it. It was a very nice paper. Right. And it turns out, most people think about lapping as you immerse the tongue into the fluid, and then you essentially use it as a cup and withdraw. And that's probably how Tupinambus does it. It coats, it coats its tongue with the fluid and then withdraws it and then scrapes it off. Cats don't do that. It turns out they do the very fast lapping, but the the fluid doesn't go on top of their tongue, it's on the bottom. What they do is they rapidly create a column of fluid, which they then withdraw in. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was these were guys at MIT, and it was fascinating, the guy in mechanical engineering, I guess, had his pet cat noticed something interesting, took movies, they created this very interesting robot that created this fluid column, and they then did analysis on how fast you had to move and what the areas would have to be so that you could maintain the fluid column. And then they went and looked at the speed of lapping in a whole variety of different, um, basically, cat animal, animals from the cat (coughs) species, lions and, and tigers and cats and things like that. And they found that if you looked at the scales, there were some very nice scaling laws that fit with their model of how how you actually did lapping. Very, very beautiful. Again, I very much like the paper because here, once again, people think about the principles in terms of the mechanics and the physics, and then they realize that that's going to create constraints on what the the nervous system has to do to solve
1: the problem that way. Right. So So, so then after that, you you sort of... Now start to move to if you if you want a bit more complex a, a complexification of tongues, which was like peristaltic peristaltic exactly. movements across exactly. multiple segments, That's right? Which right. could be sort of multiple tongues glued together That's in, right. in some funky way. Um, so and and also. And from there you moved on to to the plecia, right? Right, so. What are the key insights that that you gained looking at these peristaltic movements that that you see in different kinds of animal species? So what you see is
0: the the thing that we had initially focused on, and the literature emphasizes that peristaltic involves segmental movement. And as I mentioned, Arne McNeil Alexander has this lovely book on animal locomotion. That's the name, and I highly recommend it. Um, I'm not not related to him in any way, but I highly recommend it. It's a great book, it's very accessible and he has these beautiful, a whole beautiful chapter on some of the issues in the mechanics of locomotion and he talks about peristaltic locomotion. And one of the things he emphasizes is that you have to get the mass moving and then you have to slow it down and decelerate it. And this is really the classic way that people think about it and if you have segmental locomotion that's how it works. <clears throat> but if you actually spend time staring at earthworms so after the rain in Cleveland. And we get lots and lots of rain. Um, The earthworms, which will otherwise uh, 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 drown because they need the oxygen, will come out and walk across the sidewalks. So you get an opportunity, if you care, to look at worms on a fairly regular basis. Now, I think most people either squish them or ignore them. But if you saw me, I will be bending down and actually staring at the worm for an extended period of time. And what you see is there are different regions in the body. It's not a simple movement, actually. But the animal does have this wave of contraction that goes from one end to the other. So on the one hand, there are clearly segments. You can see them. But you see this wave that's moving. And the wave is very smooth. It's not... confined to one segment at a time. So this led us to think about what would happen if we did this uh, analysis at the differential level. What if you took segments and took them down to the level of very, very tiny elements? And that analysis, which, uh, again, I hope will be coming out within the next few months, ordinarily, when people talk about peristaltic motion, they think of it as rather energetically inefficient and very slow. And this analysis showed that actually that's, neither of those are necessarily true. If you set it up properly, you can actually keep the center of mass at a constant velocity and, of course, there are going to be frictional forces within the body. You don't have to depend on external friction to keep moving, which means that the energies are not due to losses due to frictional contact. Um, And that means that you could probably sustain these movements if you could uh, minimize internal friction for quite a long period of time. That was very interesting. And, and the robot I showed that is built on that principle moves quite, quite fast, as you saw in the video. Those earlier videos, at least one of the underwater ones, we had to speed up because it was quite slow and it was boring right. to watch. Whereas this one, you had to actually walk fast to right. keep up with it.
1: But, now, but, but <clears throat> with this system, uh, what we want to know, of course, what, what are then these bio, biomechanical properties yes. that actually make this an effective... Yes. Uh, locomotion device. That's right. So, so what, what, what are the key biomechanics that make this task actually doable
0: if you are a worm? So this would require, and this is not an area I have pursued, but I'll say a few things from what I've read. And if someone was going to be inspired by this to follow up, what I'd recommend doing is spending some time studying the, um, the details of the cross bridges and the actual mechanical arrangements within the musculature of the body wall of the worm. Because what people have shown in a variety of different settings, so I have a colleague, Kisha Nishikawa, who works on uh, ballistic movements in frog tongues. They can actually, there are three different classes. In one class, the animal essentially throws the tongue out. It's a ballistic movement. And there's another class, for example, where they use a muscular hydrostatic property and they slowly protrude it. So here you have a tongue, you have species that are similar but one is feeding on termites that are relatively slow and that are in crevices and they use a muscular hydrostatic property and one is going after insects that can fly away fast and they use a ballistic inertial tongue. She's looked very carefully at the cross bridges and come up with some very interesting models for how there may be very important nonlinear ways in which you can extend muscles much further and also contract them much further depending on how the cross bridges work. So I would spend time looking at the material properties and understanding that, and then if that was, if I, as I would expect, was true, I would then talk to people who are doing biomimetics and see if I could build devices mm-hmm. like that, perhaps initially micros- macroscopic, but ultimately with advances in nanomaterials, it would be very exciting to try to get someone interested in that. And that would be the way uh, I think you could, again, not prove that the biology works mm-hmm. that way, but strongly suggest that that's right. the, the key physical property.
1: But for instance in the system you you showed, which is this larger uh, device that uses peristaltic movements to move, uh, I don't know exactly the dimension, it looked about like a meter yeah, long a, yeah, or something yeah, like yeah, that. Quite, so pretty pretty big. Yeah. Also, there you must have identified biomechanical contributions yes. to, to its ability to actually generate these these, yes. these waves. Yes, I mean the key thing was the,
0: the, the student who did this work, Alex Boxerbaum, spent some time mainly focused on the questions of how would you get, a, what material could he put together that would give him the kinds of 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 uh, changes in strain that were crucial for the for the uh, the mov- movements that he was mm-hmm. looking at. And he came up with the idea of essentially, and again, partially inspired by what you see in the physical arrangements in muscles in animals, but this idea of actually weaving the um, the cable in a helical fashion, one in one direction and then another in another direction, and then basically pinning the cables together so that they formed a whole series of rhomboids. And now, by using these cables within them, again, this is his idea, you could shorten or lengthen different regions of the cable, and because it was now pinned, instead of just shortening, it would pull together and force the others apart, causing that expansion in that particular region. Very ingenious Mm -hmm. on his part.
1: Right. Very ingenious. But... The step to understanding how this then relates to the neural control of such a uh, biomechanical system. Yes, yeah, so that's that, what that's we're, we're working future. on right now. Right. And okay. actually, one of the things we're doing, I talked a little bit
0: about these stable heteroclinic channels, which we'll come to next. And we actually just got funding from the National Science Foundation, myself and my colleague Roger Quinn, to look at this, um, actually trying to put together more of the degrees of freedom of this device, with this stable heteroclinic channel network idea to see if we can independently control different degrees of freedom, actuate and independently control them. I don't know if it's gonna work. Um, I have a history of saying, I think this is true and then it does actually show itself true and I have a history of encountering lots of skepticism when I make these claims. So, but I'm also, more more often than not, I'm also wrong. But we can actuate individual parts of the mesh. And we can th- thus separately control and activate them, and I think we can get the thing to bend and lift up and actually form curves, mm-hmm. uh, and possibly also negotiate fairly tortuous terrain. It may take us several years, but I-, I think that's all that's all within
1: our grasp. Okay, but then, do you see the the controller that's, that's behind that, or the neural control, um, as still? reducing this complexity or roughly mapping one-to-one on the complexity of this morphology? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So I think the issue is this. If I'm trying to create peristaltic waves, unified waves, I actually, and again, in the robot we showed, that's a one degree of freedom device in terms of control. Because the cam basically allows you to pull on the different... um, cables and change their length as it circles, and that's all you need to get the, the peristaltic waves. So what that suggests is that under certain circumstances, if you're creating waves, a collective contraction of specific elements in sequence will be all you need, and the whole thing will do what you want. Now, if you want precise, careful movements where you're exploring your way through obstacles, and then you're curling around and perhaps pulling something, That's not going to, you're not going to be able to create this nice unified, let's actuate everything in a simple way. You're going to have to do much more complex things. I think the way I think about it is this, that when you don't need all the excess degrees of freedom, what much of the neural control does is to try to simplify down those degrees of freedom by appropriate collective activation. Mm -hmm. And when you do need them, they're there. And again, I think the nervous system may use some of the principles I was talking about to fractionate them out and pull out the things that it needs. So the answer, once again, is it will depend on the context in which the thing is being used. And what we're going to move towards is a situation where, and again, this is very nice in terms of the controllers I was talking about, you can gang them together so that they do one thing all at once, but you can fractionate them if necessary so they can map onto finer, much finer detail. Right.
1: So some something you, you, was, you were structuring also in this presentation um, from let's say fairly simple sensor motor systems or cellular uh, motor systems to more, more complex ones. And so, after the peristaltic movement, and then this nice uh, proof of concept, if you yes, want, with your one meter long worm, um, you then brought it to the point that you say, look, but the use of these muscles we should think about in terms of context. And this yes. is an important principle. Yes. And to illustrate that principle, you used also a grasping. Yes. Right? So, so, so what do you really mean when you say, okay, muscles are used in context?
0: Okay. So the example I gave in the talk, let me talk about it a little bit. Um, so it turns out that in our hip, there are certain muscles that act for either, I think it's um, moving forward or moving back, depending on where the rest of the hip is. In the, uh, in the arm, the brachioradialis, is used for uh, if your your palm is up, this crosses uh, the joint, and it's crucial for turning your palm down. So if you think about the direction of forces, it's going to rotate in one direction. Now once you have the arm down, the hand down, that same muscle plays a role in rotating the arm back in the opposite direction. So if you look in terms of the torque arm, it actually switches direction, and it can do so in part because of the new position it 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 finds itself in. Uh, Several people, and this was some years ago, um, using cadaver studies and pulling on different muscles in, in the context of limbs, show that as you move the limb through the workspace, what the muscles did was not a simple relationship and was very complex. And this is actually, if you go back and look at uh, some work that people had done back even in the 19th and very early 20th century, people did very careful work on, say, frog musculature. They showed that as you move through the workspace, what the muscles did changed. So this idea of a protractor, retractor, pronation, supination, these are all fine. You teach medical students that. It's very helpful. And in standard configurations, that's how it works. We found in the aplizia system, and I'm emphasizing the vertebrate examples to begin with to show that I think this is much more general, that as one part of the structure moved relative to other parts of the structure, the actual functional role of the muscle changed. So a muscle that was thought to push a grasper back could actually move it towards the jaws in the appropriate context. And the two points then that I made, which I thought were very crucial, was that what a muscle does is a function of its mechanical context. And the second one, which I didn't illustrate but could go on at great length because we've shown this, because muscles do that, when you are trying to do different behaviors or behavioral variants... What you do is you call upon a coalition of the relevant muscles in that particular mechanical context to make that happen. And some muscles can't be used in a particular context, and other muscles must be used, and other muscles can variably be used. That, so the general principle I stated, which I think is a, a broad truth, is that it's actual coalitions, changing coalitions of muscles are what give rise to multifunctionality. And I think that that's a general principle.
1: Right, but, but, so, but it's interesting, right? Because now we went from, from this worm to, to um, the idea you tested on this grasping response right. of, of Aplysia. Right. And in some sense, we get the complexification of, of the whole system. That's right? correct. Because this, the strength of, the, of your, let's say, your C. elegans model was like, well, it's one degree of freedom that they can control with very minimal control. That's right. Same
0: That's for right. your tongue. Right. right. But remember, the, let's talk about the Aplysia Grasper. If I showed it to you in all its glory, and if you come to Cleveland, I'll be happy to do so, or if you invite me and bring me slugs, I'll dissect them out and show them. Um, very complicated, and what you will see is it's a soft tissue structure, and if I poke it or excite it, you'll see all this complex shimmying around that it's capable of, of doing. So even though there are constraints because of its physical nature, it and it's, it's not jello, but it is very flexible. And there are all sorts of different things that the musculature can do. In the analysis that I'm doing, we're really simplifying down to talk about essentially two degrees of freedom, which is opening and closing and protraction and retraction. So again, I didn't give a lecture on aplizia Mm. feeding. If you asked me to do that, I would have happily done so. So we've taken this whole complicated structure that has all sorts of different potential degrees of freedoms and maybe 15 or 20 muscles. And we actually think about it, and we can show that in terms of the behavior, if you just focus on opening and closing and protraction and retraction, you can create all of the different functions I talk about, biting, swallowing, and rejection. By changing the timing, the duration, and the phasing of those key two components, you can get all the different behaviors. So, in fact, we see that as an enormous simplification. In addition, and again, I didn't have time to talk about this, because the musculature is fairly slow, We can actually, we've done some analysis of the mechanics in detail. We can define what we call neuromechanical equilibrium points. So for a given pattern of activation in the in the neural outputs, we can actually predict the trajectory that the musculature will take over the next several the next several hundreds of milliseconds. And and we can talk about that as the target the animal is aiming towards. You're dealing with very low mass, a um, fairly viscous system. So inertial forces are not in the picture. So it's elastic and, and visco, viscal, uh, viscous forces. Viscous, yes. Yeah, so velocity-dependent forces, as well as position-dependent forces. So not so much mass-dependent forces. So what you're dealing with um, is a system where you can actually see smooth trajectories, and you can talk about these equilibrium points defined by the neural control as well as by the mechanics And that it provides also a huge simplification for thinking about where is the nervous system trying to push the whole, the properties of the system from one set to another. So even though it's a much higher dimensional system, this idea of understanding the mechanics properly and analyzing it properly and taking the muscular hydrostatic properties and using that to see where is the system going, how to analyze it, has led to simplification. But it is a more complicated system, so it doesn't simplify down quite as much as the original one I started with.
1: Right, but the question that this raises is that, okay, but now what are the implications of neural control, right? And how does the biomechanics actually constrain that? and make it solvable. Because in some sense, isn't this sort of a restatement of the Bernstein problem in some sense? Because yeah. you say, look, I have many different ways to perform a movement. Yeah, right? so in exactly. Sense, well, he, he, he pointed out two different
0: things. First of all, he talked about the invariance of the motor field. And I think this is still something we do not understand. I can learn to sign my name with under a microscope or with a paintbrush against the side of a... a, a, a a barn. And I'm going to be in one case using a very, very tiny set of muscles, in the other case I'm going to be running with my entire body, and the signature will look the same. So he identified early on this notion of motor invariance that I think is still a very deep question that has not really been properly addressed. Part of the reason I'm so excited about the neuromechanical equilibrium points in the slow system, I know about equilibrium points, the fast system, and all the debates in that area. I am agnostic about that, and I've seen the debates pro and con. But in my system, which is much slower, where I think we can uh, much more easily make the argument and then show data for it, um, I think this is an incredibly powerful organizing principle. Uh, the point that Bernstein was making though was he doesn't ever use the term cursive dimensionality and he doesn't ever in his book at least as I've read it say degrees of excess degrees of freedom are a problem What he talks about is how that they are sculpted into these biodynamic waves that give you this patterning and that when uh, individuals go through the lifespan you see these these pattern movements that change over age or if someone has a As a a wooden leg that they have to use as a prosthetic, how they incorporated it into the biodynamic waves. He had this vision of an internal dynamics that was mapped onto those degrees of freedom and that provided some kind of unification and simplification
1: of their control. Mm -hmm. So I've
0: been very influenced by that. I think, and so if I'm restating something that Bernstein said, Mm -hmm. you've just complimented
1: (laughs) me. (laughs) No, look, but this is what it sounds like a little bit. But this is what, what I'm looking for is then. Okay, we have all these possible combinations or different if you want now skeletal motor contexts in which a muscle can act. On the one end, you have your biomechanical constraints that will limit this in some sense. But now the question is, how does your neural control now tune itself to then these, let's say, valid combinations, right? This valid right, set right, right, right. Of, of muscle combinations.
0: So you're, you're asking a very interesting question. So this actually would jump me to the end of the talk and the question of initial conditions. So let me, let me spell this out. So I have a colleague at CASE, her name is Lynn Landmesser, and she's been studying the early development of the nervous system, especially the spinal cord, for many, many years. One of the things that she has discovered is that well before birth, there are spontaneous patterns that start in the nervous system, in the spinal cord. And so prior to having wired up—this is before motor neurons make contact with the periphery—regular dynamic patterns are established. Once contact is made, there are trophic factors that allow the size of the musculature to map back onto the nervous system and increase, for example, proliferation. So a larger periphery will generate more motor neurons. But also, not just in terms of numbers, in terms of the dynamics, once there is contact, uh, another investigator who's studied um, chicks before hatching, Ann Becky, has shown that there are spontaneous movements that, and so again, any, any mother will tell you about the fetal kicking and stuff like that, there is an ongoing coupling that's happening prior to birth whereby the periphery is providing feedback, sensory inputs, and the the nervous system is generating these spontaneous dynamic patterns, and they're shaping each other. And that's what you have to start with when you are born. So you're not starting with a tabula rasa. And an infant doesn't lie there passive and immobile. It's already moving things around. And then, I mean, this is like a major, major breakthrough for my kids, when you can finally get the thumb into the mouth reliably and keep it there. That's like amazing. <laughs> um, so there are some built-ins like suckling. And then there's these more complex things that are built in. And there's this the dynamic continuous reshaping between the periphery, its experiences in the world, and the nervous system. That's what's going on there. So what happens is this kind of jittering around, this play, this this activation, this is the dynamic way you tune that system so the nervous system knows about the degrees of freedom that are out there, and it takes advantage of as many of them as it needs to. The other thing you raised in part of your question to my talk, which I just have to talk about again, because I thought it was a very important issue, especially in higher organisms like ourselves, useful repetitive patterns are speeded up and they become part of our repertoire. They are like reflexes. And that's not something you see in all animals. Many, as I said, in the lower organisms, you have these fixed action patterns. And those are pre-wired, and they, they can't be changed. If you, I, didn't, I didn't talk about this in detail, but a wasp that's going through nest building, if you interrupt it and then let it continue, it just like a machine. It just goes back and continues doing exactly what it was doing. You would not see that in a primate. You would certainly not see that in a, a human. <clears throat> and yet, if there's something like our tennis swing or piano playing, that becomes an automatic behavior. Mm -hmm. So again, very important. So this tuning, shaping, and this dynamic view that I'm trying to argue is how the nervous system does it. I don't see that as necessarily working through some kind of internal representation. I see this as this trial and error playing around, very good initial dynamics, um, feedback from the environment, shaping the connectivity, the local connectivity, and generating an, an effective dynamic model that's what's exploited subsequently. So
1: as if the nervous system is freezing its degrees of freedom to control the periphery. When it
0: needs to. Mm-hmm. And then unfreezing them when it doesn't. And that's, that's I think, a really critical insight. So that sometimes things look absolutely seamless and incredibly easy. But anyone, you say you do sports. So you can remember the difference. I mean, this is something that was very striking to me. Watching someone do the crawl. When you watch someone who's learning how to do the crawl, you see all the effort and you see all the... and you can see all these inefficiencies and the person is doing the movements. Then you look at someone who's a trained swimmer and it's this seamless, beautiful motion. I mean it's just gorgeous. And there's there's one motion after another follows in this absolutely seamless way. There's a there's a there's a real beauty to it. That coordination, that that choreography is something that reduces the unnecessary degrees of freedom and allows the person to do it incredibly
1: effectively and efficiently again, I think it's a tuning of dynamics mm-hmm. but then we, we should try to, to understand a little bit what the, these key organizing principles are exactly about, exactly right? so and, and, and for that, you you start to look. Uh, this is of control, you tied very much to also ideas about, let's say, attractor dynamics and how attractor yes. dynamics are regulated. Exactly. So, so how is that giving us insight in the organizational principle? Okay,
0: so again, the notion of attractor dynamics and why I'm attracted to attractor mm-hmm. dynamics is the following. First of all, although these are qualitative um, dynamics in many cases, th- there are both... In lower dimensions, there are very, very rigorous mathematical things you can do, and in higher dimensions, very interesting numerical things you can do. And what's again interesting is that you don't need to have representations internally to get very complex behavior, and you get smoothness and robustness and the ability to handle noise and perturbations essentially for free. You don't have to put in all of that. You don't have to plan for the the combinational uh, complexity explosion that's going to happen if you have to deal with all the possible different cases, that comes for free. So attractor dynamics is inherently robust to perturbation. That's why we call it an attractor. Um, And it has a a lot of architecture and it has a lot of um, tools that allow you to set things up and to try to map them onto things like nervous systems. So I didn't have time to talk about this in my talk, but... Rubinovich has shown, and we're starting to do some of this, that some of the ideas that I talked about from Attractive Dynamics can be mapped very naturally onto known neural architectures. And what that means, then, is that doesn't guarantee that you'll know that neuron A makes this connection to neuron B. But it will say that if this hypothesis is correct, this class of neurons should be tightly coupled to one another, and they should be activated together. They should inhibit these other groups in such a way that they can't take over while this one is activated and then there should be a, a, appropriate, you'll excuse the term, recurrent loops such that you can destabilize that pattern of activity and allow another one now to uh, generate a burst, be active, also have its own internal coupling and keep the other part silent for that period of time. Mm-hmm. So what's very nice is as I see these descriptions and I look at the models, and again, the math is something I can follow so I can actually understand what they're talking about, I immediately start thinking in terms of the neural circuitry that we're studying, and I have some ideas for experiments that I would like to try, which would test whether these ideas are of any value. And again, as I stressed in my talk, I am, when it comes to theory, I'm an absolute agnostic. I'm, I do not, I'm not a believer in the sense that, you know, this theory is right, that theory is wrong. If a piece of a theory will work I'm gr- that's great. Let me take it and I'll use it. If it doesn't work, okay. So mm-hmm. we'll come up with a better theory or right. use a different theory.
1: But there are two things about the attractor networks. Um, so on the one hand, it could also possibly mislead you because maybe an attractor that, that that you observe at some at some level of the state space of this organism, because it's up to you at what level you describe it. Right. 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 These attractors might be some mixture of neural states and biomechanics. That's right. And in, and in some but sense. But that's. No, But in some, this, in some sense, you want to tease these factors apart. Well, that's but the But now it's starting to become, because as you said yourself, you then interpret your attractor in terms of some recurrent neural structure.
0: Okay, so the interesting point that you're raising is this, and this, this is something that came up in the second talk, which we may get to or not. I just found that really inspiring. But the issue is that <clears throat> when we look and do folk psychology or folk philosophy or anything like that, we tend to carve nature up in certain ways. So... The elements are earth, air, fire, and water, right? Because that's what we see. But then, as science progresses, we begin to discover that that's actually not how nature is carved up at all. But that doesn't lead us to abandon the notion that there might be elements. It just requires us to rigorously refine what we mean by that and then come up with good operational definitions for what is an element, what's a molecule, and what's, what's not. Similarly... It seems to me that the formulation of the neuromechanical equilibrium point hypothesis that, again, I didn't talk about in my talk, but is something we're actively working with, may or may not carve nature at its joints. We don't know. But it's an organizing principle that allows us to look at the bursts of activity that come out of the nervous system and the musculature that's active at a particular time and say, ah, we can make a good prediction as to where this is going to go next. Now one thing that illustrates the likelihood that this is going to work is the following. Um, and again, this is very qualitative and I immediately admit that. But my students, um, set up the animals and they have them instrumented so that they're recording from that key muscle I talked about that pushes the grasper forward and these three motor neurons. I walk in and I don't look at the animal. I look at the recordings. I say, oh, it's biting. And, she, and my student says, yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Now, again, this is, I'm, I'm using my visual cortex as a, as a uh, stand-in for some other analyzer. But what I'm suggesting is that if we can begin, as I, I, I and my students have begun, to recognize certain motor patterns as they're starting to unfold and make a prediction as to what's going to happen, that suggests that these ways of thinking about it and conceptualizing what's going on may be very powerful for understanding the organization of the system. They may be artificial impositions that we've created that have nothing to do with nature. At least being aware of that is the basis for going in and probing the system to try to show that you're wrong. And so that's one of the things that we make a lot of effort to do. So um, if, if the systems actually do have a mix of the neural and mechanical, and that is actually what's going on, then if we find in the nervous system attractor dynamics, which mix those two appropriately, again, it's not a proof, it's very suggestive. The key point that you're getting at, which I take very strongly, and is, again, I'm hoping to press this forward, depends on resources and depends on students, would be to disrupt the system in predictive ways and show that if I take out, <clears throat> a particular key interneuron that is supposed to instantiate what i'm arguing is one of these attractors and i prematurely turn it off or i turn on another which ordinarily would be inhibited i can predict what that perturbation is likely to do based on the attractor dynamics and show that the behavioral changes are similar now that's still not a complete proof but it becomes a much more sm- it's a much stronger sense that yes the way i manipulate the system and modify it is reflecting what's going on. It's not just a useful summary
1: for the way I think about it, it might actually be what how the system itself is built. Right, That's but so. this is an also an important point here because in your in your modeling, in the end, uh, of these of these, uh, tracker dynamics, um, what we look at in the end was some sort of recurrently coupled network where you both had sort of self-excitation and then full lateral excitation right, right, in right. the network. And then the obvious question that then uh, I also pose is, of course, well, but, but why would I believe that that reflects, let's say, the nervous system of aplysia? And for that, right. don't we need to impose a, a few more constraints that, that relate right. to the so, physiology, the anatomy? And again,
0: again, I didn't have time to talk about this. There's been, as I mentioned, uh, now about uh, nearly, it's three and a half decades of work. I mean, Irving started focusing on aplysia feeding. His first publication was 1974 but he'd started doing that a year or two beforehand. So it may be nearly um, four decades, actually. And uh, as I said, we have about 200 or so of the elements. Now, each of the, in, in the controller for the um, feeding apparatus is what's called the buccal ganglia. It's an organization, it's a, it's a collection of nerve cells. There are two uh, paired ganglia. And in those, there are about 1,000 nerve cells each, About uh, 150 of them are motor neurons, some tens of them are key interneurons, and the rest of them are sensory neurons. We know many of the motor neurons, we so know some of the interneurons, we know relatively few, but at least a few of the sensory neurons. And we've mapped a lot of the connections. So when I talk about recurrent neural networks, we can show that this neuron actually not only inhibits this, it excites that, and that one comes back and after a delay can inhibit that one or excite that one. So we see huge numbers of loops that are based on binary recordings from the nerve cells.
1: But still, in these loops, you would have very characteristic transduction delays that you might not capture in these models because these models, in that sense, are more uniform.
0: Well, the interesting issue, though, is remember that for the real nervous system, it still has to deal with the low-pass filtering of the musculature, the real musculature. So what's going to happen is some of the FAST phenomena, which are important for the dynamics of the nervous system unfolding in detail, are going to be lost when you push them through the periphery because the periphery is only going to be getting a low-pass filtered version of that. So if our models capture the low-pass filtering properties reasonably well, even if not all of the details of the dynamics at, higher, uh, at faster timescales are captured, we may nevertheless capture some aspects of the dynamics of the nervous system that matter for the periphery.
1: Sure, but then you still have to show that in terms of the, the time constants within that system, they sort of match that low pass filtered version of That's the right. periphery. And in
0: fact, what we do see, for example, the B31, B32 interneurons, which I very briefly mentioned and have been characterized. So back in 96, this was a collaboration between my lab and Avi Susswein. This was published in Journal of Neurophysiology, two companion papers. These, uh, these neurons generate plateau-like potentials. So when they get turned on, they actually fire for an extended period of time. And their axons go out to the periphery and they activate the grasper's protractor muscle, the I2 muscle. So the time course of their activation is very well tuned to the muscle. And in fact, we did a paper in 1999. This was a collaboration with Pat Crago and a student that he and I shared. We actually did um, a detailed biomechanical study with a motor to look at what happens as you stimulate the nerve and looked at the force frequency, length tension, and force velocity properties of the muscle. And we actually built a model of it based on the neural inputs. and We showed that if you took EMG recordings, you could actually get movements out of that model that looked very similar to the ones that you actually measured. So, again, when I talk about that kind of transduction stuff, it's not based on just, well, I think it's okay. We actually have done a lot of that hard work. Not as much as, I mean, it's a sensitive point for me, for any biologist, because there's always more that I could do. And so immediately you're going to get me on the defensive correctly, mm-hmm. because talking to my fellow biologists, they're going to d- demand even more, and I demand that of myself. But we have gone quite a far ways to argue uh, that the things that we're seeing are right. So, for example, one of the things we found, which is quite interesting, <clears throat> if you look at the uh, force-frequency relationship, if the neuron fires at 6 hertz or 5 hertz, very little happens in the muscle. If it goes above 10 hertz for a period of about two or 300 milliseconds, force begins to develop. And that was just something we found from actual doing the stimulation. Now you look in the animal, or you look on the the muscle and you look at its activation pattern, and lo and behold, when protraction is occurring, it goes on very intensely above that frequency for that period of time at least. And what we also showed was that if you increase the duration of the activation, you can increase the force the muscle generates. It's very Mm -hmm. sensitive to that. So yeah, we, we are very sensitive to those issues, and our system is sensitive to those issues. Right,
1: but, but, but you do agree that that's sort of right now in the future, right, to, to match then these ideas about Well, what I'm saying words. is that
0: for this one particular example, this one muscle, and this particular set okay. of interneurons, we actually have done the matching, Clear. and it matches well. Right, So Understood. does that tell me that the rest of it matches? Of course not, I take your point very mm-hmm. strongly. Mm-hmm. But what it does is it encourages me to say, hmm, we might really be on the right track here
1: right so so uh, would you claim that the plissia brain is also like a liquid state machine now <laughs> no i don't think i would, I would claim okay we don't. Have the nor would i nor would i
0: claim that it's a quantum computer <laughs> all right good Th-
1: that's progress so um but now the last type of experiments that you were describing were these simulations of of let's say sort of a a very hybrid kind of model. Yes, of the artificial insect. Exactly, you had different bits and pieces. Of, how many insects did you, or different species did you combine there? We use
0: probably five or six different stories that people had developed over the years mm-hmm. and put them together. I mean, one of the things that was amusing to me, people had warned me about this, but you can have 30 or 40 years of hard neurobiological work and one model can eat all that up in about a month. Sure. too. It's amazing. It's so scary. Mm-hmm. And then the person's coming back to you and saying, well, what should we do here? I said, well, they haven't done the measurements yet. So, so what am I supposed to do? Now, Randy wasn't like that. He actually mastered the literature, and he had good ideas himself. But we were the parts of this that we were the least satisfied with were ones where we had to actually make things up. Um, and as to the extent that we could use dynamics and con- connectivity that actually emerged from the literature but had never been looked at this way, we were both much happier. Right. And it was very interesting because no one had to, at the time we did this, try to actually, number one, take all these different things and put them into a model, but number two, try to create an entire functioning Agent mm-hmm. that could actually yeah, get so around this, and well, do stuff. Published,
1: I mean, this is quite some time back already, right? Yeah, we
0: did this in the late '80s, and right. that that review article that came out in American Scientist was in 1990. Right. So exactly. this was quite a while. Really so early, yeah. Rodney Brooks was at that time, sorry, just starting to do some of his interesting work, mm-hmm. and it was very interesting to me because I think he was reasonably successful when he was down to the level of, of doing these, um, you know, Genghis and these other. Uh, robotic insects. When he went up to COG and things like that, the progress mm-hmm. slowed down very right. substantially.
1: Absolutely. No, this is this is clear. Um but then so so but also there we, so we earlier discussed the issue of validation at let's say yes. the neuronal level. And then with these experiments we, we had to with this issue of validation at the behavioral level. Yes. Right? Because at what point when can you really say, look, behaviorally this is valid, right? This is it all about, okay, as long as it survives my simulated environment, or should we look at very let's say, as long as it displays the same behavioral patterns I would observe in so, the animal. At, on these at,
0: at, this goes back and again at the beginning, very beginning of my talk, I talked a little bit about the role that modeling plays. And I, I didn't specify this, but let me sort of clarify this because it's something I've given a lot of thought to, and I I like that question very, very much. There are two really different ways of thinking about what a model or theory can do. One is a quantitative predictor of what an actual system will do next. And the other is almost a kind of applied philosophical exploration of the space of possibilities. Those are often much less respected, but they can be very important because they can say, "Look." we didn't even realize that you could create from these various ideas that are out in the literature a device that could actually survive in this very simplified environment Mm -hmm. for an extended period of time that already changes how people couple with the process of modeling that gets people who would ordinarily scoff and say models waste of time to say wow you could really do that I would love to do something like that. And then my immediate response when someone comes to me and does that is your question. What is your question? What do you want to do with it? Are you interested in trying to capture a behavioral phenomenon here? Are you interested in a level crossing model? You want to test that some underlying mechanism actually generates the macroscopic thing you're seeing? Or are you actually trying to make a very quantitative prediction? Or are you just an engineer who would like to take some key ideas from biology and run with them and make it into a methodology that may no longer have make contact with the biology but could be used in a general way? What's your interest? That's the next question. Mm -hmm. And then the validation, and I gave you a little bit of this, comes from how useful is it for those particular, very different applications. So for an engineer, to the extent that, I mean, as a neuroscientist, I think that feed-forward neural networks with backprop is a pathetic caricature of the complexity and the richness of the dynamics of real nervous systems, but is a way of generating interesting mappings... It's fascinating. If, on the other hand, vector array machines can do just as good a job or faster, then they're going to take over. And I have no problems with that. Right. But then if I say, well, understanding the nervous system isn't that useful, see what happened with neural networks. I say, well, that was because the engineers took the part that they could actually controllably work with and claimed that that was the whole thing. And if it wasn't, then maybe they missed some of the parts mm-hmm. that matter, like the dynamics.
1: Right. But now the two issues you highlighted here is um, on the one hand to be able to predict for the system itself what it would do next in a certain right. situation, right? right? But what but, but you seem to exclude in that summary is to predict back into the empirical domain. So are you excluding this really? No, yes. not at oh, all, okay. not
0: at all. Because again, I talked a little bit about level crossing models before you came and I wanna emphasize this. And I showed that again when I showed the, in the Epplizzi example, We had this hypothesis about how this muscle could do essentially two different things, push the grasper forward or backwards. And building a physical instantiation said, yes, it could. It didn't prove it, but it said, yes, it could. Moreover, it said, if that's true, it might have to be activated. Again, there was this sequence of activations that we had to use. That suggested something Mm -hmm. for what you might see in the animal, which could be tested. And in fact, we've been spending time looking at the different domains. It turns out that jaw muscle actually has different domains, and there are different motor neurons addressed to the different domains, mm-hmm. anterior and posterior, and their activation patterns change in time depending on what behavior the animal is right. doing. So, some of the things that the robot was doing mm-hmm. was actually suggesting something about what you might see at this broad level if you actually look carefully. Right. At the, 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 the biological system. So I love when that happens, and I'm, I'm very much aware that that has to happen for it to validate it as useful for the biology.
1: Okay. But then for, for, for the different models you, you described, which of these comes the closest to actually satisfying all these different levels of constraints? Well, that I you're think the, now? the
0: argument I was making about stable heteroclinic channels and the possibility of mapping that onto neural architectures. now, The reason I'm so excited about that, of course, is we haven't done all the hard tests, so I can Mm. pretend in my mind that it all works. Mm. Um, But my sense is that that could actually be a way of breaking open these problems, and especially in systems where you are trying to generate a stable pattern of activation of some number of elements. Because again, the low-pass filtering of the periphery is an enormous opportunity to simplify because what it means is that really, really fast transient changes are going to all be filtered out. So that you're going to have to maintain state in the nervous system for long enough for that message to get out and have an impact on the periphery. And that means that some neurons are going to go into saturation, others are going to be uh, off, and they're going to, that's going to happen for hundreds of milliseconds. So that then means that you can define, it's a little artificial, but you can define stable patterns in the nervous system and look for the mechanisms that generate them. Mm-hmm. And that's right. the thing that we would then be looking for and that would be corresponding to these various attractors mm-hmm. that we talked about. Right. So that's, that's, I think, kind of exciting.
1: Yes, absolutely. So then to, in the end, when you also try to make this, this, this step towards engineering, you highlighted if you want, four principles that you felt, look, if you, <laughs> if you want to talk about biomimetic, <laughs> Engineering or biologically based engineering, then then what you have to think about is evolution, learning, development, and initial conditions. Yes. So, why are these now the four key principles you would like to generalize into engineering? All right. So, let me go through them. And that's a
0: wonderful question. Uh, Engineering, design, um, and then there's manufacturing, then there's control, and then there's history. I think those are the four things. So, if we look at uh, cars, so there's a, in Cleveland, there's the Auto Aviation uh, Museum because Cleveland was actually, people forget this, one of the birthplaces of various different kinds of automobile companies. Um, and um, uh, the initial version uh, of cars is really a horseless buggy. They look exactly like buggies did in the late 19th century, and there's a motor in front. And that's what they look like. They, they don't look at all like what we think of as cars. It took some time for people to free themselves from that. Now, to some extent, engineers, because of the desire to create disruptive technologies, are very into this idea of coming up with something completely new. So one of the things you're doing to take notes is an iPad, which I think is a beautiful example of disruptive technology. People had come up with various tablet architectures, and none of them had this sort of seamless integration and this way of doing media and this way of really just be- beautifully, elegantly putting all the different things together. And so this is displacing and it's defining a whole new market. So there's an enormous press for that in engineering. In uh, biological systems, history matters a great deal, because as I said, when an organism is born, it has to be up and running instantly.
1: Yes.
0: And so initial conditions become absolutely crucial if you start off with an organism that more or less has to be programmed from birth in very complex ways then you had better build around it a social structure that allows it to be taken care of in its helpless state for years and years until it finally is released into the world human infants fall into that category but if you're an insect you don't have that luxury you get up out of the egg and you walk away and when you molt You go someplace, you're still for a while, and then you discard your old body and walk away from from it and immediately start doing things. You don't have the luxury to relearn how to do various things. It just has to work. Okay? So that's why I stressed initial conditions. And that initial conditions also, I wanted to, that, that really dovetails with all the other things. What the tendency among engineers, and I completely understand it, having done some engineering myself, you want to come up with this really brilliant idea, and then you want it to be a design principle. And so you have your hammer, and everything is going to be a nail. Mm-hmm. Okay so if you are a control theorist then everything is going to put in the rubric of control theory if you're an information theorist everything can be stated in terms of information theory if you realize the power of kalman filters then everything is going to be done using a kalman filter etc 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 but biological systems <clears throat> the initial conditions is just an example of how much history matters evolution which is not a design process of the sort that engineers are used to is one that builds on what already exists. It's canalized by all the things that have happened beforehand. And it basically is a proof of principle system for design. If you leave, if you leave offspring, you're good. And if you don't, you disappear from the gene pool and you become extinct, mm-hmm. and that doesn't work. And it doesn't mean that there was anything wrong. Many of the solutions that dinosaurs came up with, if we had a way of recreating a dinosaur, we might find the things that they're actually much better at Than organisms that live in our world now. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a statement that they were somehow inadequate. Changes in their environment at that time were ones they couldn't tolerate, so they went extinct. And that could happen to us just as easily as it happened to the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. But now, uh,
1: engineers might say that actually, right now, in in their practice already, they have included things like learning and initial conditions. Yes, they've started to.
0: But the realities are that the way they do it is very different from the way that biology still does largely. And again this goes back to the when I talked earlier about the wiring up of the nervous system, the early nervous system. So what happens? So you have over evolutionary time, you have a genetic code that then gives rise to a exponentially cascading process that takes one fertilized cell into like I mentioned trillions of cells that are precisely organized and the plasticity that allow the development to unfold, because there are all these local rules that allow the system to wire itself up, their gradients, their local cues. And so this whole system is not based on some central organizer that looks from the top and says, you go over here and you go over there. The system is building these cues as it's unfolding and generating new cues that help the next stage of unfolding. Mm. It's really amazing, and people have really not wrapped their minds around it, either in biology fully, or in modeling, or in engineering. And I see that as a total frontier that we could do amazing things with.
1: And that's also to which you apply, let's say, your Swiss Army knife metaphor, right?
0: Precisely. Mm -hmm. What we would do, and I have no complaints about this, I write code because I program, and I loved it. I mean, it's enormous fun. You are the god of your own world. You can make anything happen. But if you're a good coder, you are trained or you learn very quickly, you don't want self-modifying code. That's a bad thing. And you don't want to use other people's old code because you can't figure it out. And you want to make it modular. And you want to give functions that have well-defined functionalities. You want to have clean interfaces. I mean, the Unix operating system, the pipes, forks, uh, setting up processes, uh, killing the processes, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So again, I actually, unlike many biologists, I have immersed myself in how engineers do things, and I've built and used those tools, and I love them. But when I look at the biological systems, I don't see anything like that going on inside. Right. And so what that tells me is, wait, if I really want to do this, certainly a digital computer can emulate anything. But the architecture is so different that it's not going to fall naturally on it. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be fighting with it, and I'm going to run into all these computational bottlenecks because I don't even have an architecture that's massively parallel, asynchronous, mm-hmm. and even though it's much slower, can do all of this stuff just naturally. And that's what I have in the nervous system. Mm-hmm. So what's been fun for me, but it's also sometimes frustrating working with engineers, is trying to you know, open their eyes to the fact that really there is this other technology, and there's another way of thinking about it. So why engineers do what they do is something that completely makes sense to me, and I don't want to encourage them not to do that. I want them to explore, take forays into, be willing to take risks, and try thinking about things really in a different way. And that's where immersing yourself in the biology and spending time with someone who, like myself, really cares about talking to engineers, knows math, actually enjoys these kinds of conversations is a valuable exercise. One of the things I've done in the past with other engineers who've approached me, so I will sit down with, for example, molecular biology of the cell and work through the chapter on development with someone who is interested in that. And it blows their mind. But having a guide, it really is like, you know, I think of the Aeneid. You really need to have your Virgil. You need to have someone with a <laughs> lamp guiding you through all the acronyms and all, the, 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 all this sort of stuff. Okay. Because Excellent. without that, mm-hmm. uh, it becomes almost impossible to, right. to understand what's mm-hmm.
1: going on. So now to, to, to get to the finish line, yes. two questions. So so the one if, right. if I now want to exercise this sort of Bernstein invariance of motor control and paint on the wall of, of the campus here this one law that we should apply <laughs> to biomedic understanding right. of biology and technology. Right. So this is the Hillel Chiel's law. Right? right. Right. What's the one law? Mustn't go to right there.
0: Pay attention to the biology.:
1: OK, Pay attention to biology. and then um, but I would say to the biologist, that's the, the, the law for the engineers. Right.
0: And from the point of view of the, for the biologist, I, I paint on the other wall,
1: Yeah.
0: Um, focus on the principles. Okay. Because the difficulty you have, when you come to most standard biology talks even I have difficulty with this, because I think differently than mm. many biologists. I like math. I like abstraction. I'm not focused about you know one detail after another. They just bury you in details. They love the details. They can't get enough of the details. So you're sitting there going, they've got all these names, and they've got all these structures, and they have all these details. What matters? Please. Mm-hmm. And the answer is, part of the reason it's so difficult to answer it is they don't know for sure because it may depend on context. Mm-hmm. But if you're focused on trying to articulate principles if you think about the principles as a biologist, and if you pay attention to the biology as an engineer, I think you could make enormous advances in the next decade
1: or right. two. Okay, but now if, I'm, if I have less patients in a whole decade, and I want to go visit you five years from now, Yes. and I want to say, okay, in 2011, you made this one prediction, and right. today I'm checking whether it actually came out or not. Right, right, right. What's this one prediction? that you're most enthusiastic about today?
0: Um, I, would, I would go with the stable heteroclinic channels, as something that I hope within five years we have some more evidence that they might be relevant to how the system works. That would be the one I would go for, in terms of my personal work, because that's something I have control over and I, sure. I see the experiments mm-hmm. I would do. In terms of fields as a whole, there I, I, I have less, I'm less sanguine. There are ra- rare places where people are trying to get biologists to actually do good biology to talk to engineers who do good engineering. There are a few places. I would hope in five years a few of them have had some hits and have gotten other groups to say, oh wait, you mean a collaboration between a biologist and an engineer is not just that we get money together, we talk once every six months or a year, and then we get more money together? You mean we actually have to talk to each other on a daily basis? And I would like to see more of that happening because if we saw more of that happening, some of the things I was pointing to, like focusing on development, like trying to come up with plasticity that affects global dynamics, really that's gonna take an interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary effort. It's gonna take the minds, the best minds of people who really are working, they're in the trenches, uh, in the biological systems and they're in the trenches building engineered systems, really working together and coming back and forth with each other, and again, I've been doing this for years with different colleagues, and it's been enormous fun. But it's the reason I've accomplished what I've accomplished. That constant willingness to go out of your immediate comfort area and to start to talk someone else's language and to see the world through their their eyes and to recognize that that's the way you have to try to take what you're learning and help them see it that way. That's, I think, where the most productive things are going to happen over the next five years. Excellent.
1: So, Lucille? Chiel, thank Chiel, you very much it. for this conversation. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, thank you. Sure. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European Seventh Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.